Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is John Case. John brings nearly three decades of industry leadership in cloud services, software product management, marketing, partner sales, digital promotion, and brand development to his role as CEO of Acumatica. Before joining Acumatica, John served as president and CEO of Unify Square, a leading provider of operations and performance management software and cloud-managed services. He also spent 16 years at Microsoft in a variety of executive level positions, including corporate vice president of Office and Office 365, where he spurred the digital transformation of Microsoft's most successful cloud business and vice president of the worldwide OEM division in marketing and sales, where he jointly oversaw the global distribution and reseller channels for Microsoft. Welcome, John. Good to see you. Yes, thank you, Sean. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay, I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire. Sweet or savory foods? Uh, sweet. Me too. What is your favorite genre of movie? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I think drama movies would probably be, if I had to pick one, Desert Island Disc kind of thing, I think it's dramas. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? Oh, flying. Oh, that would be cool. Where would you go today if you could fly there? Up in the mountains. Okay. That's some, that's sometimes my question is mountains or water. Yeah, I'm guessing. Once, I, presuming it isn't like the speed of light, I would go to the mountains and enjoy the afternoon. It's a nice day. Yeah. It is a beautiful day. If you could have dinner with someone um, who's either alive or who's passed away, um, who would you have dinner with? Um, Richard Feynman, the physicist. I think he's one of the most fascinating individuals in the last hundred years. Yeah. Have you been asked that question he before? He was involved with, with, with the Oppenheimer Project, but he was a Nobel Prize winner, famous physicist who did all kinds of amazing discoveries um, and just is a really interesting individual and character. Some great books about him and autobiographies. Okay. I'm guessing you've read them. You sound like you've been asked this question before. Oh, I have read. <laughs> um, what are three words that your team would use to describe you as a leader? Oh, I think they would say uh, open. Uh, they would say uh, integrity. Uh, and they would say rapid. Nice. You're doing great with your rapid fire. Um, what was the first concert that you ever attended? I remember going to a Neil Sedaka concert with my mom when I was about five, um, which is kind of frightening. But as an adult, like, well, a teenager taking my own concerts, I went and saw a band called Genesis, 
um, was the first ticket I ever purchased. In like Phil Collins, Genesis? Phil Collins, yep. Phil Collins on the drums and singing. I think I Good was job. about 15. Nice. Love it. So where did you grow up? Where are you from? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. My family's all still there. We're I'm now in the Seattle area, but I, but I grew up in Atlanta. Yeah. Interesting. I'm excited to hear what brought you out to Seattle. It's so different. What was your childhood like in Atlanta? Um, you know, it was interestingly, um, in some ways, it's what you expect because you're in the South and it's, you know, an urban environment, but in some ways it's not. I, my parents were uh, sort of, my dad was sort of one generation off of a farm and my mom was, um, you know, somewhat similar background and, you know, living in Atlanta when it was in a, in a boom town in the 80s uh, was fun. But I was at a fairly, um, I, I'm sort of in the Mercer Island of Atlanta, let's call it that, right, where it, it didn't feel like the rest of the city necessarily. And had a great time there, but you know, was ready to get out of the South and get out of the heat. Yeah, I'm sure. So when you look back are, and you think about some of the early choices that you made or lessons that you learned or people that influenced you, are there things that stood out that you, I guess, reference today as a leader? Sure, all the time. Uh, and I think both leadership in work, but also sort of what kind of person you are. And that's the way I like to think about that from a mentoring perspective. And I actually start with my mom, who was uh, one of the deepest influences and still is on me. Um, she was a social worker who set up childcare and housing projects all around Atlanta. And she worked, I mean, she got government grants for Native American reservations to set up childcare. That was her specialty. And so she she put childcare in low-income areas, um, you know, for 30, 40 years. Um, and that was a huge influence on me because she, I got to go on some of those trips with her and, and think about some of the things she was doing and learned a lot from her about um, how to treat people and what people, you know, needed and, you know, how to help people. Um, and my dad was interesting. He was a corporate guy, worked at Coca-Cola, which most people in Atlanta at some point worked for Coca-Cola. And, but then he decided he didn't want to do that anymore and, and left that job and went and bought a little hotel up in the mountains and ran that for the rest. And my mom and dad lived there for, uh, you know, 25 years and ran that until they retired recently. So like, that was very different than I think some things that you think about growing up. Uh, but because of, you know, the friends I had, schools I went to, whatever, I also had access to all kinds of interesting business opportunities. I remember um, working at, at Budget Rent-A-Car in Atlanta, which was my first job uh, for a friend of mine's father. And that's how this stuff works. And he owned Budget Rent-A-Car in Atlanta. And I got to shadow him and and hear kind of the kind of things he was doing and thought about the kind of business problems he was facing. It was fascinating. It's not what I thought I would enjoy, but, it, but when I heard him talk about being an owner and a CEO and a leader, I got a lot out of that summer and the summer after that. Um, and then not long after, I actually got to work at a software company. So someone that I knew was, you know, the head of a software company in Atlanta, and he said, you want a summer internship? And I was, you know, a senior in high school. And I was like, that sounds interesting. And that totally changed my mentality on software. And that was a long time ago. So those oh, are the I'm sure. experiences that I remember that shaped kind of what I'm doing now. Yeah. So if we took like a little snapshot of you, like the fifth grade you, before you had exposure to budget in the software industry, did you were you like every other kid like I want to be a baseball player, or did you have a sense of what you wanted to be? And if so, were there people in your life, I guess, that you looked at and you said, "I want that." Well, you know, yes and no. I think sure, everybody, every kid wants to be a. Uh, in my case, it was a soccer player, but but every kid wants it. But you know, that's a that's you also always know in the back of your heart, like that's a pretty remote situation. Um, and I think that, you know, I looked at like my, I had an uncle that was a, a kind of a well-known business leader. I remember thinking, is that a life I would want? Um, I remember again, looking at my dad thinking, gosh, my dad made the exact opposite choice. He said he was going to go kind of to work for himself. It's a very different choice. Um, and I got to kind of 
think about those things. I'm not sure I had a clear path in my head. You know, I was very interested in um, what I now recognize as sort of economics and economic concepts and the way people make decisions. I was very interested in psychology. Um, and it turns out, it, it, again, I think about that now, but I remember thinking about why people make decisions they make and mm -hmm. what influences people have. And those are actually experiences that shape me more so than I said, I have this path that I want to yeah. take. I think I felt that way when I was that young. Yeah, well, it sounds like, sounds like you had lots of things that helped prepare you and, um, you know, exposure to lots of people. Tell me about what is Westminster Schools? I saw that on your bio, but then I know you went to Williams for undergrad. So is Westminster like a prep school? That's the that's the prep school I went to in Atlanta, yeah. Oh, it's a prep school. Okay, so yeah. like Regarding you had way. to test in kind of sure. thing. Yeah. Got it, okay. So tell me what that was like like how did you choose Williams you, it sounds like you had probably some options you're sure you were good in school like um how did you make that choice it's such a big decision I feel like yeah I I, I was you know quite keen to see other parts of the country was first thing I'd say second thing I'd say was you know I, I had lots of options at other bigger schools and but really thought about uh what I wanted and I wanted smaller school and smaller class sizes and kind of a more uh intimate environment that was important to me um and Williams you know was a you know, a really good college, still is a really good college. I'm hoping my son goes there one day, maybe, you know, we'll see. And um, I think that that for me was a very logical choice. Now, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, the school steers you one direction and they're always like, oh, go to Princeton or go to Harvard. And those are amazing choices. And I just wanted something slightly different. Um, I wanted yeah. to be out in the woods. I wanted to be away from the city. I figured I was going to live in cities the rest of my life. Here's my chance to not be in one. And I like I like the smaller school environment. I like the people I I've gotten to know there. So yeah, one or two folks from my high school had gone there before, but it wasn't like a, a constant stream. And so yeah. it was a bit, of a, a bit of a a bit of a difference. But it sounds like it was the right choice for you. It was very good for me. And that's I think great. Those kinds of choices sometimes can be great for people if you self-select carefully, right? That's a that's always a life lesson I talk to people about is like understand your own motivation, what makes you happy, and go with your heart. If that's what your heart's telling you, do it. Yeah. Definitely. So in monitor group, um, that was your, was that your first job out of college? Like your job, job? Yeah. And what was, what kind of consulting were you doing? Well, we did strategy consulting for large companies. And so I was, you know, my clients were the likes of AT&T, Coca-Cola, uh, you name it. And, you know, we were, you know, one of these kind of, there's other firms like it, like Baines and BCG's monitor was a small one at the time that since that doesn't exist, it was purchased uh, by another firm. But I got the chance to live in, uh, it was in Boston, but I got a chance to live uh, one whole year and a half in Southeast Asia. I spent another year traveling around Africa on a project. Wow. And that was what I wanted. I, I loved the idea of using that kind of, of uh, company to get to do some things that I wouldn't get to do otherwise. And that made me very happy. I will be so happy if that's the path, that type of path that my son takes, because um, I feel like I did a lot of recruiting in New York and did a lot out of... Um, you know, the alternative asset world and investment banking and consulting. And I feel like this type of role right out of school is such a great foundation. It's a great, and, it's a great basis for learning. It oh, almost, yeah. It makes business school obsolete if that's a path that people want to take. Yeah, well, because I was going to ask you about that, because I know you went back to Dartmouth to get your MBA. Was that yeah. something that Monitor sent you to go do? Or you were like, hey, this is my knowledge. Like, why did you need to go do that? I, uh, there were two reasons. Uh, one, because I actually wanted to change careers. I actually think it would have been too easy to just stay doing consulting for, you know, inevitably more years and eventually work at a, at a corporation. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to get into technology. That was, mm -hmm. that's the path I was seeing more and more. And I actually had, yeah, I felt like going to business school would give me a credential, would allow me to kind of break down that door. It probably could have done otherwise, 
but that was that was a big reason of it for me. And the third was, you know, sorry, the second thing was I actually think that the people that I knew that had gone to business school, these are these are bonds that people keep for life. And so it was a community that you kind of wanted to be a part of. And I'm still extremely close with a whole host of my uh, business school classmates, far more so than in terms of numbers, far more numbers than I am with my college classmates. I just think yeah. business school experience when it's when you're you know devoted to it and isolated in it, it's a very intense experience and you bond very deeply. So yeah. that was something that I was intrigued by. Now, yeah, and also the third thing was it's just kind of what you did. You do your couple of years of work. Totally. You know, people that you know are going to business school or some other grad school. I think that's less and less important as I get older. The two yeah. other things are more and more important. Is it could I get on the path I wanted, you know, in terms of the job title, the job career, and the and the, the space, but more importantly, the people that you got to know. That was, yeah. a, was a thing for me that was very compelling. And so um you went to Verizon. Was that was that the kind of breaking in? I guess it's not really even technology. Is there something I'm missing on there? No, that was actually that was an interesting story. Um that was before business school. Right. Okay. Because I see Verizon, I'm like trying to figure out the dates here. It was before business school, and and that story was basically I'd done three years of consulting, kind of felt like I'd done the first like my time there, my stint was kind of I was coming coming to an end. And I'd done so much work in telecom that Verizon, which at the time was called Bell Atlantic, was building out a, a a new set of services based on the deregulation of the telecom industry, and so I went there to kind of take a shot at that ended up you know not loving the environment and so I didn't I only lasted there a year and then decided to go back to business school yeah okay got it and so you did launch into technology because then it's the Microsoft thing did they recruit you off campus like uh, that I mean, whole like recruiting program I mean, again, that was that what I was intending to do to some extent I came to Microsoft for the summer like I, I yeah they came okay. to campus they recruited and I got to interview and you know got a job offer for the summer and I thought what's what I mean summer in Seattle come on that's a no-brainer yeah they're um, like they, that's how they get you a great place to be a summer intern you know and and, and so got, had a great you know experience that summer and then you start thinking about what you do the next year and they if they decide they want to keep you they make you an offer for that and it's just really easy to say yes um i fully intend to do that for a year or two and then sort of assess the technology landscape and then find something else um and then obviously i didn't i stayed 17 years so but that but that was my intention was to have yeah. a great year great year to learn the climate and do something else it's funny because I feel like that's a lesson just historically that I'm always talking to my kids about and that you think about. You always have intention. Like I moved to San Francisco. I stayed for six years. I moved to New York. I thought it was going to be a year. It's like 10 years. You know, you just, if you're having a good experience and you're around, I feel like, you know, I'm not sure what lens you use to make decisions. Right. Are you vetting it on like, like what was that process to, to think about Microsoft over other opportunities? Because you probably had a handful. Sure. I mean, I think it, it, you have to be honest with yourself about what motivates you, right? And I think that, again, something that I mentor people all the time is understand what your motivation comes from. My motivation comes from, am I doing really interesting work? Do I think it's something that's going to have a bit of an impact? It wasn't about money or title or company name. It was much more around, am I doing interesting work? Can it have impact? And do I like the people I'm working with? Those are always my three things. Um, that's how I I'm, I'm writing that down. I think that's really good. So interesting yeah. work impact and the people that you work with. I think well, so many people talk about this with recruiting. It is a really good, important message. Right. So, so when I go, when I think about a, another job or an opportunity or whatever it is, I'm always thinking about it that way. Microsoft at the time, man, there was a lot of interesting things going on. Um, I, I, the, the things they were asking me to work on, I found very unique and different, um, and fun. And that's fun for me. And then I sort of said, and, and the people I was doing those things with, I liked. 
And so yeah. it was very easy to just keep staying and keep getting new jobs and new opportunities there. Microsoft does a pretty good job of moving people sort of through their careers. Um, yeah. And then you, know, you, you can't argue impact. I mean, you know, everyone's got a PC on their desk or you know, they're using you know, email, for whatever. There, there's all, all those things are true. So it was- Microsoft a, touches everyone, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty cool chance to do those things. And I got to do, again, some of the same experiences where I was you know, heavily international and I was working in fairly obscure businesses for Microsoft that were still enormous that, that motivated me. Um, and then I did some of the kind of more mainstream things too, but all that was just fun and interesting. Right. Almost like you had, it sounds like you had a little bit of like an entrepreneurial opportunity as far as being in different markets, different business lines. Um, well, this is as big as Microsoft, you know, and, and this is a compliment to Microsoft. But I'm still a fan of the company, even though I'm not there. When you're replacing because Microsoft and you're running a $500 million business, it's rounding error to them, right? So, you know, you, know, you get to do different things. You're kind of off the radar. Eventually they say, hey, can you go work on Microsoft Office? I spent my last four years there working on Microsoft Office. And that's obviously the biggest, most profitable business the company had at the time. So yeah, you, you get to do some mainstream stuff too, but you get the chance if you're working on one of these smaller things or incubation things to do some different stuff. And that was fun. Yeah. So walk me through where your headspace was uh, the year that you left. Yeah. Like what was, what were you thinking about? What was your kind of like talk with a friend over a beer? You bet. No, I had been at Microsoft, as I said, about 17 years. Uh, my last job there was sort of running kind of product management and marketing for Microsoft Office and Office 365, both the consumer and the commercial businesses. And that to me was the best job someone that was like me was going to, I could have. Like that was the, that to me was my favorite thing I could have done there. It was such a big business, such an interesting kind of part of the product line, going through massive transition. And I sort of thought, you know what? Like I, I had kind of been tiring of the environment there for a long time, just personally, it was, it was a draining environment, but it was also the best job I could have asked for there. So when I got kind of the end of that run, I, I said, you know, now is the time to leave. Like, and, and you know, th there were other options to stay. And I just kind of felt like that was the time for me. I kind of, that was as good as I was going to get. I was ready to try something in a, on a different path. And I went through a thought process of, of uh, so I left without a job. I didn't, I didn't have a job when I left intentionally. I just left and um, took several months. I mean, I, you know, I, I interviewed with some companies right away because the recruiters call you. And, you know, I realized talking to those companies, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't want to. So I was in these deep interview conversations and I was realizing it's very easy to go from big company to big company um, because if you leave Microsoft, the, the, you know, the likes of the Googles and the Amazons and the Salesforce call you and they want to talk to you. Fine. But for me, I just didn't feel compelled to do that. So I had to take some I had to step back and, and think about things. And I, I took the opportunity to do some really good family travel. We've been you know planning to do. We just did it all right then. And um, yeah, where you know, did you go and how old were your kids at the time? Oh gosh, let's see. Uh, well, the, the big trip I was talking about, we did an Italy trip and an Africa trip in that. In oh, that. so cool. I, I took about six months off intentionally. And my kids at the time would have been, uh, let me think, one would have been seven and one would have been 10 or 11. I'm so jealous because I, that is a regret that I have. Like you don't get that time back. No. And no, we've been planning these trips like a year or two out. And I was like, no, we're just let's just pull them into this window because I I was off, and mm -hmm. so we did. And, and again, all that as I as I was doing that. And the other thing I'd say is I I was and still am a very active angel investor. I do a lot of work with small companies. I don't want to work at one. Like I think that's a different skill set. But I like working with them. I like mentoring them. I like being I like being learning about what they're doing. So I was already off thinking about small companies, and was starting to get people saying, well, would you come do that here? Or, or you know, we just took on we just raised capital. Would you want to be the 
be involved with that. And I, that started getting more interesting to me. And in the end, I ended up a, a company, not a tiny company, but one like that, where I personally invested in it and um, was asked to take it on to be the CEO by their board. And so again, it became, I was a, one of the larger investors and I was running the company and that was my job after Microsoft, but it took about 10 months for that to happen. And yeah. you know, making the decision to kind of forsake uh, the large company environment was a very different, you know, it's a, a hard decision and you don't know that your skills translate. You don't, you don't know. Well, I meet with, I meet with people all the time and, you know, friends and friends of yeah. friends and candidates who are making that transition. And there is a little bit of an identity moment of like, wait, who am I? What am I? And especially because you can pick up the phone from a company like Microsoft and be like, oh, hey, it's me. And it's like, John Case, Microsoft is like a whole sentence versus like, now I'm just me, John Case. Like who? And I found that a lot of my friends have that moment. And then on top of it, Microsoft, you know, you can get that like whole golden handcuff thing where you just can't leave because you can't make the comp to startups. You have to decide to break the handcuffs. That's what I had to you go gotta, You got to decide. And that takes a lot of courage. That's, um, right. so that's why I kind of wanted to press you on it because I think it's an important thing for people to listen to that might be at a big company or a small company to really take that time to get to know yourself. I've, I've you know, talked to, mentored, advised dozens of people who thought about that transition. And the thing I say to them is, ask yourself, you know, you're thriving in a place like Google or Microsoft. Are you thriving because that's the environment you want to work in? Are you thriving just because you've learned how to function in that environment? You know, so right. you, you become fluent in something like that and you can do it and that would make you valuable to other large companies. But is that what you want? Is that right. what you're trying? Is that what you are trying to be a part of? Or would you try something else? And knowing that that's risky because you take on, you know, a leadership position or a position at a smaller company, you might not be able to do it. Like you might fail. And, and, and that's a risk. Does that excite you or not excite you? And that, that's the kind of questions I like to talk to people about. Yeah, I think it's important. But also just looking at your resume, I mean, I'm guessing you've had some failure in your life, but you you really have one of those resumes or backgrounds that's like, uh, you know, I would bet on this horse type of background because it sounds like you're the kind of person who's going to find a way to be successful wherever you land. And I think sometimes people give the company too much credit and forget that like you've had success also because of you. Like not everybody does great at Microsoft and not everybody's you know, goes to Williams and goes to get their MBA at Dartmouth. And so there's that confidence too, that if you're an ass kicker, you're an ass kicker and you're probably going to do great at a startup. Um, as long as you actually know how to do the tasks, because the assumption, at least from the outside world for someone at a big company is that you've been kind of like outsourcing or delegating and not actually doing the work. And so that's, I think the confidence part. I think going from being a, you know, you think like they're couple of as a senior, going from being a corporate vice president at Microsoft, to the CEO of a small company, you think those are fairly comparable jobs. They're not at all, right? They're not at all comparable jobs. The, the, the CEO of a small company, you got to make decisions on things like real estate and compensation and you know insurance and things that would never in a remote million years cross your brain at Microsoft. The other difference is at Microsoft, at a place like that, I've got 100 peers that I can talk to that are similar jobs that I can compare notes with. And I, you know, the CEO of a company like this, it is a lonely place. You don't have hundred percent. You don't you, you 100%. Have to be willing to take that on. And yeah, sure, I can get. I have I have friends of mine that run other companies. And I can talk to them about the same problems, but that's not a day to day opportunity. You're here by yes. yourself. You feel like it pivots through you. Do you want that risk or not? And you yes. can fail, right? And there have been many times that I've made mistakes or thought we were failing and had to figure out how to save that. So there's no. The resumes are really good at hiding that, right? Resumes are really good at hiding the 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 trouble spots 
because that's not what you put in your resume. But they're right. there. You learn from them just as much as you learn from something else. Hundred percent. So tell me about Unify Square. What made you decide to invest, and what made you decide? I'll tell you more about it. It's basically a software company that was at the time a Microsoft partner that was building technology that enabled large corporations to use products like this one, like Zoom, better. At the time, it was only for Microsoft Skype, and it became for Microsoft Teams. And and so if you're a if you were a big global corporation that was running you know video meetings or or calling you know conference calling for thousands and thousands of employees, your IT team needed some help. And we, our software gave that. And I knew that was a growing issue. It was, this was pre-COVID, but I felt like for my time at Microsoft, I'd seen that be something that customers struggled with running these applications. Because some of these applications like Skype uh, were some of the most hated applications at any company. And you know, companies that ran them well didn't get credit for it. Why was that? Well, this, this smart company and this smart entrepreneur had built a tool that, that helped with that and, and it was patented and it was interesting, but they kind of didn't know how to make a business out of it. So it was this interesting technical idea, um, but but the, the company was struggling kind of with go to market, with selling, with, so the company was kind of, I wouldn't say in decline, but it wasn't doing very well. And so for mm -hmm. me, you know, I was given, again, I, I invested because I believe in the technology and I said, okay, I'll come in and run it. And, you know, for me, it was just a, it was somewhat of a conviction. I believe this was a good idea. And it was somewhat of an experiment. I wanted to see if I had the ability to be a CEO in a company like that. There were about 100 employees at the time. And when we sold it, it was about 300 employees. So it about tripled in size in the four or five years I was there. And, yeah. Um, but it, but it, you're absolutely deciding this is the kind of risk I want to take. I mean, I, 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 that was the kind of thing that made me interested. Um, and and so you, that's what I did. And I, again, I, I, it was a, the, the, the entrepreneur stayed and was in the CTO slot. He stepped down from being the CEO. And I ran the company, you know, for them and for the ownership. And I was one of the owners and then we sold it um, in 2021. So I was there for four and a half, five years and basically turned that business around and was able to, to sell it. That's great. And everybody's, everybody wins. And, and Unify Square is one of these companies that, you know, you, you never come across it unless you're this specific type of IT person with this specific type of problem. And then it was a very famous name, but the, the mass market wasn't going to know that product. And right. that, was, that's not, that was not our, our goal. We were trying to make that a mass market product. Um, yeah. Acumatic was a little different, which we can talk about next, but that's a- Yeah, I want to talk about it because it, it's also another one. You know, you, it's not, you're not the founder. So yes. who, who tapped your shoulder for this role? And how did you, again, same question, like through what lens were you looking at this opportunity? Yeah, you bet. So in, in, in some ways I broke some of my own rules when I did this one, but that's okay. Um, but you know, so I, I, we'd, I sold Unify Square. I, you know, kind of agreed to stick around Unisys for a little while um, to help integrate it, but I wasn't going to stay long term. And they knew that. But in the end, they were making some decisions that allowed me to leave a little early, which was great. And so I left earlier than I intended. And I was intending again to take some time off. Um, and I liked that the last time I was intending to do another, you know, three, six, nine months or something. But in the end, what happened was I got a call from the ownership of Acumatica with some people I worked with, some other projects. And Acumatica is owned by a private equity firm called EQT, which is a, a, one of the biggest private equity funds in the world, and it's run out of Sweden. And I'd done some project work with them, and so I respected the company, and which was a big deal to me with the ownership quality. And they said, look, you know, it's a, it, I know you just changed jobs, or you're, sorry, you're just finishing a job, but we have this opportunity, and we think it's, you know, one of the best companies we've ever worked with. And are you interested? And so it's just, again, I intended to take some time, but I decided, no, 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 I, I had to take a look at this. I mean, 
partly it was, you know, 500 yards from my house, which is kind of, you never get that kind of commute your whole life, but, but that's only this part of it. But really, I was a customer of the problem. So like my Unified Square was a customer of Acumatica. We had bought okay. this customer and we were running it. So I knew what was good about it. Um, I knew the, I, I thought I knew the company. I didn't know much about it. So, so when I found out more, what I saw was a company on an incredible growth path in a very underappreciated market with a really compelling technology. And I liked the, the ownership, the team I knew. So, so it hit all my other boxes in terms of, you know, is it interesting work? Is it going to have impact? Do I like the people? But, but the, the only thing I violated in my rules was I, I intended to take a break. And I didn't. I literally took no time in between and yeah. sort of jumped right in. But it, it, I sort of, my wife and I talked about that. And we, we sort of said, look, we're never, like, this is the one that we would have wanted 12 months from now. We'd be comparing every other possible job to this job. And we would have found those other jobs wanting for some reason. And and if you had waited, the market's turned. Like, who knows? Where, who knows? Yeah. It's, it's such a different market. So totally. the company's been around since 2008. Is that yeah, right? About 13 or 14 years old. That's right. And what's the origin story of the company, and and also what what does Acumatica do? Of course, um, so the the company was founded, as you said, you know, you know, more than ten years ago, um, by a couple of people who had had worked in and around sort of what we call ERP or business management for a while, and sort of said, you know, we can just do this better, and we can we can do something that other companies are aren't able to do, or aren't willing to do. We can take advantage of the cloud for the first time. So what Acumatica basically is is business management software. Uh, or ERP for small medium businesses. So you know if you're if you're running a small medium business, 50, 100, 200 employees, or even larger, we our software basically comes in and becomes your accounting system, your payroll system, your inventory system. All those things can get automated, and it's a very uh, large market that's very underappreciated. All the focus in that market is on giant multinationals. People like SAP do the same kind of thing for giant multinational corporations. That is not our business. We are selling to small and medium businesses uh, anywhere, say, from five to five hundred million dollars in revenue. And you know, for us, that is a is a underinvested zone. Um, yeah. We, we who do you just, who do you compete with? Because I, I don't know if this makes sense, but we were using Gusto, and then we were using Paylocity. So as some of that, some but those are would be again a tier below where we're operating. I think of it more like QuickBooks, right? Where QuickBooks okay. is the is the back is the backstop or the accounting system for a very small business, and eventually they outgrow that, and maybe they 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 open a warehouse or they're doing a manufacturing facility or they're using something with trucking and logistics. They've got to have a more sophisticated piece of software. So we're right. not smallest of businesses. We're working with the you know the kind of the zone above that where there's tens of thousands of companies like that in the United States alone, and 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 who we compete with there often is the old accounting system that they've been using for two or three decades that they finally realize they need to modernize. They've got it running in, you know, under their desk in a server and they don't want to update that anymore. So we And it almost sounds like maybe too sophisticated for like a services business, but more like you need supply chain and inventory. I mean, and... Primarily sell to industrial companies, primarily, but not only. And we primarily sell the folks that are doing things like manufacturing or construction is one of our biggest products. Um, so con like construction firms, you know, will buy, will use Acumatica to effectively run their system, cost estimating, you know, payroll, understanding job costs, uh, you know, billing, operations, inventory, all those things kind of get flow through our software. So it's, we, we become effectively the financial system and the, the business operations system for these small, medium businesses. 
And, and as I mentioned, it's a very, out, like most of the products in use today by those kinds of companies are very outdated products. So we have this chance to grab them into the cloud. We, we are a, a cloud SaaS uh, multi-tenant architecture. And so, you know, this is, we go to those companies and we say, this is your chance to modernize. We have an automation system that allows you to do things in the cloud you've never done before. It's more secure, you get better data access, you can look at it on your mobile phone, you get real-time updates in your data, a million things like that. And it's all benefits they don't have. They just have to decide that it's time to put down the old system that they've been running on for, you know, a decade or more. Yeah, it's almost do. like you got to run the analysis on uh, how much time they lose by not making the change. Yeah, and there are other there are other software companies that are similar, but we think we're unique. We think we 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 think because of the demographics that we target, the industries that we target, and the the, the power of our product line and our community, which is yeah. significant. You know, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of users and customers who vouch for us, who help other customers and other users. So the power of that community is very clear. And, oh and yeah, those things. And so it's a it's a when I looked at you know what kind of company I wanted to work for next, the reputation of this company and this product was, you know, immaculate. And that was very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, the cloud, I mean, obviously the cloud ERP industry itself is so competitive. Yes. So when you're up against another firm, um, you know, doing an RFP or trying to get, get business, what are the things that set you apart? Yeah. I and mean, it's some of the things I said, but there's, there's more to it. I think yeah. a lot of a lot of those products are built for a whole wide range of companies. Uh, the specialization is the thing, like that you can specifically go into deep into those industries. Industry like construction, for example, and I can say we 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 have hundreds of references of customers like you, your size, with the same business problems you're going through. We can relate. We know how to do this. Okay, so that that is our number one selling point. Okay, and then we say, and by the way, look at our. I mean, most of these are business owners we're talking to. They're not, they're not IT people, but we can talk about the power of the cloud, the power of the technology, the power of the software. Most of those competitors aren't running the product the way we are. And that's okay. But compelling yeah. is the fact that we can relate directly to that customer's size and that customer's experience and the specific industry that they're in. That's the most, that's the strongest selling feature that we have. Right. Because then it's like we're we're exactly in our sweet spot. And it's like the perfect fit versus trying to kind of, yeah, um, yeah, that well, makes just, sense. Just to take a, a market like like you know small medium manufacturers, like you know there's there's all this news that you know all manufacturing jobs have left the United States. That's baloney. You know there there's tens of thousands of manufacturing companies in the United States. You see them in every industrial park in every city in the country. These are there are thousands, and most of them are privately held businesses or proprietor owned businesses or something like that. We, if, if we say if we say there's something like 30,000 small medium manufacturers who are making all kinds of things, you know, cups, whatever. It, it, they're all over, again, they're all over the country. What are they using? Well, there are chances are they're using some old outdated technology. We think maybe 20% of them have gone to some version of the cloud. So over the next five to 10 years, we think the other 80% are going to move. And for us, that's a that's our big opportunity is how do yeah. we be there when they're ready to take the next step on information technology, on automation, on sort of their digital transformation. That's what we sell. Yeah. And so you guys, you've raised a lot of money. You've raised, are you in their C round? Is that right? Past that. We now are fully owned by this private equity firm. So what happened was in 2019, this is part of the story of the company. The company had done a very similar ramp up to other venture backed companies and taken on some other investors as well. And then in 2019, that's when this EQT firm came in and basically owns the company. 
Employees uh, obviously get a big share as well, but there's effectively one owner. So it's, we're not in fundraising anymore. It's just simply an operation business that's run by this private equity firm. Um, and so that so basically what happens when that when they buy it, they buy out all the previous equity holders. Mm. Um, at some point, they'll decide to sell the company on, maybe to a larger corporation, maybe to another fund, or they'll maybe even put us on the stock market one day. That's all possible. Um, Interesting. And that's, that's our that's our path. We're, we yeah we don't we won't do fundraising anymore. We're backed by this again enormous global private equity firm who wants us to grow. They want us. They want us to be. Yeah. They want us to double and double again. They want to help us do that. And uh, yeah. that's a very, again, as a CEO, that's what you want. You don't want someone of coming course. in, managing your costs, telling you to be more profitable, cutting you back. You want someone saying, how can we help you get bigger and bigger again? And what oh, yeah. And that's, that's you know, that, that's we want to invest in our ecosystem. We want to invest in our product. We want to invest in our facilities. And that's what we're doing. And that's, yeah. that's an exciting thing to be doing. Even at this economic time, it's still we're still doing that. Yeah. Tell me what you think about the, this economic time. Like, how is it impacting your business? And, and what's your personal opinion about kind of the state yeah. of the economy? Uh, I'm very, I'm very opinionated on this topic. So I'm glad you asked. Um, no, I, I think that, you know, if you look like, can you come run fuel for a little bit and I can take a break and I'll go yeah, to like absolutely. Africa? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I can talk, but you don't, I don't think you're going to want that. But, um, you know, I, I think that if you, you know, certainly, certainly there've been changes in the, in the macroeconomic environment in the last 18 months, obviously, right? I mean, forget about, you know, all the things that happen. Just look at interest rates, um, you know, just just look at inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But what's interesting is our customers have not felt a decrease in demand. They were warned that we're going to feel one. So we all we, there's all this pressure being put on the market by um, you know economists, whatever you want to call it, press, whatever, saying, oh, the recession's coming, the recession's coming. Look at the labor market; it's hard. But that actually hasn't happened. So we we did see some economic activity slow down because of the fear of a recession. But we certainly aren't seeing one anywhere in our indicators yet. Could still change. Um, you know, our construction firms and our customers said they went from 18 months of backlog at the end of COVID. Maybe now they have six to 12 months of backlog. Well, that's still a crazy amount of backlog for the average construction firm. So they're not. It's not like they're going to zero and they don't have they don't have you know projects to do. Just the opposite. The um, so so for us, we 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 sort of navigated kind of in the middle of last year. A bit of uncertainty around what was going to happen. People were worried about spending their dollars. I don't feel that way now. Now I feel like people are saying, you know, I, I, I've got good labor. I'm paying them healthy wages. We're making good margins. Demand is there. Um, I do think the economy has hit other companies. We look at the other software companies, you know, larger than us that are doing layoffs and things like that. We haven't experienced any of that. Um, yeah. You know, some of that was overhiring during COVID. You know, that was obvious, but some of it was just a slowdown at the enterprise level. And our demographic, again, these sort of, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 million dollar businesses, that's not what we're feeling. So right now, I actually feel pretty bullish under the next six months. Oh, that's great. And tell yeah. me, um, I, it sounds like you're investing. Um, I was like, why wasn't I invited? I wanted to go to the Vegas Acumatica <laughs> Summit. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun tell me about that. Is that something that's annual or was that? What do you do there? Is that for customers, employees? What do you? What happens at the summit? So that is our biggest event of the year, and um, and it's it's a it's a fantastic, uh, award-winning, in lots of directions, award-winning show. Uh, it is it started as an event for our kind of partner channel, but but now it's basically you know mostly about customers and users and people evaluating us. And there are thousands of people there. Well, you know, almost three thousand people were there this year, sort of experiencing Acumatica. It's people who are 
you know, from all over the world, but primarily from North America, who, uh, and we do it every year in January. We had some scheduling changes during COVID, but we did it every year. And and it's it's every year in January at the Wynn in Las Vegas. And, you know- I, I love the Wynn. Yeah, I like we do too. <laughs> they do, and they, do, they put on a good show. They do a good job for us. Yeah, that's awesome. So since you're making this um, product and you're trying to make it- um, very usable and accessible and, and targeted. How do you balance like making it too technical and also user-friendly, especially if the demographic might be in construction and not like highly technical? Absolutely. Um, Is that yeah. a weird question? Like I was just curious oh, no. because oh. when I'm using technology, I'm like, I want it to work, but I don't want to overcomplicate it. Absolutely. You, you, you think of software and you assume it's a highly technical engineering driven system. That's, that's always an assumption. Because a lot of folks, that is who you sell to in many, in many, in many software businesses. You're selling to an IT organization or a software developer or, or an engineer. That's actually not who we sell to. We sell to finance people, CFOs, and business owners. So it, you know, the, the typical firm we sell to is, again, it's a privately held business, often run by a single proprietor or a partnership of a couple people. And these are not folks who are software people. They want to know how to look at an income statement. They want to know how to do their invoices correctly. These are processes that they're familiar with. We're just giving them an automated way of doing it. So it's, we're going to be very careful understanding that user. That user is not a technologist. They, they might be savvy in how to use the, the system, but it doesn't mean they're going to go write code. It doesn't mean they're going to go you know, change the security settings and their deployment or whatever that is. So our, our engineering system is geared towards that user, the one that's going to actually decide to buy the software, implement it, and then use it to run his or her team. And, mm. and every day, we have to make sure that's the, that's the customer feedback we're getting. It's from that kind of user. Are these features that they want? Um, the, yeah. the person on the factory floor, are we giving them features that they want? The, 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 man, the construction foreman that's off talking with subcontractors and general contractors, are we giving them the function that they want? So you have to be really careful to make sure that when you when you're looking for that idea, are you thinking about how to design that system? Are you designing it for that correct user? Or are you just right. doing the logical thing which is making it harder and harder to use because you're overloading it with technology? That is not what we want to do. Yeah, that makes sense. So you talked about the growth and the, the private equity firm is like, let's do this, let's grow. Um, what's the growth strategy? I know you're, in, you're global. Um, what are your plans for growth? You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of choices, so which are good, healthy choices. We are we are somewhat global, but we are mostly selling in North America. You know, more than ninety percent of our sales are in the U.S. and Canada, uh, and that's that'll be the same for a while. Um, we 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 don't. I think that software companies of our size, and we started to get really aggressive in international markets, it would stretch us too far. And so we we'll, we'll do that one day. That's not on the the short term. And we have some business already in places like Latin America and the U.K., but that's not that isn't the our predominant growth strategy. Our growth strategy is very much through our product system. Um, you know, I mentioned we have, you know, certain industries we're very good at. We're going to add to those industries over time. We're going to deepen in those industries. So even, we talk about manufacturing, but even within manufacturing, there's dozens of individual specialties of types of things you could make. Um, yeah. You can imagine that making cabinetry, which we have a whole business in cabinetry and cabinet makers, is very different than metals or is very different than grocery or whatever it has, food products. Those are all very different businesses. So we, we will enrich our product system to get better at those kinds of things and we'll add to our industry list over time. And what that does is just opens up more of the available market to us. And uh, we, we, we do that with a set of partners. We have you know 
third-party resellers and, and VARs, value-added resellers that come in and do implementation and, and do consulting on behalf of Acumatica. And we have third-party software vendors who build products on top of Acumatica. And so we use that we use those systems as a way to gain scale and, and to drive our community. So we have, you know, we have thousands of advocates of Acumatica that work for other companies who yeah. benefit economically as we also grow. Yeah. And that's, that's a, that is the strategy. We are an indirect business. We want to work through that channel. Um, and we want, to we want them to help us access customers and access parts of the market that we wouldn't be able to do ourselves. That makes sense. And so as you do scale and you add employees and headcount, how do you ensure that you stay close and that you, I guess, hold on to what you built, the company culture, the values, you're putting your yeah. stamp on this company, but like, it's hard when you it's, grow. It's extremely hard. And it's one of the easiest things to get wrong. And it's one of the hardest things to get right. Uh, yeah, I think that in any company, when you go from, you know, say hundred employees to a thousand, and that's the path we're on, we'll be at a thousand fairly soon. It, it, just that alone, you know, you don't know everybody's name anymore. You know, you can't, you, you, yeah. you can't pick up the phone and talk to five people that, you know, that just started. And, and it's even harder on the new, the new hire, especially in, you know, post COVID remote work, whatever you want to call it cycle than it is on the long-termer. So I actually think you've got to be very planful and, and intentional about that. And you have to look at team building and you have to look at culture at a local level, at an office level and at a functional level. And what I, what I encourage my folks to do, like just like within our sales team, I want them to be very conscious and planful and intentional on how they do culture and, and, and morale underneath the company umbrella. And at the same point, if those salespeople happen to sit in our Columbus, Ohio office, I want the Columbus, Ohio office to have a feeling of culture and morale and, and a centricity to it. Yeah. Um, but but it, it's just very hard. And actually, we use the summit for that a lot, too. So, you know, I would imagine because that's when everyone's together, the energy's well, there, you get to get up and kind of be there. All of our partners and, and you know, third party vendors will be there and our customers. Yeah. So we use that very intentionally as a culture moment. Um, yeah. to define that. And I think one of the things we talked about, actually, if you, if you have some spare time, you want to go watch my keynote, which is very entertaining. What you actually would see is we talk about this. We talk about how hard it is to maintain, you know, the uniqueness of Acumatica in this high growth mode. But that's what we're committed to do. And, you know, we'll do the best we can and we'll make mistakes and then we'll correct them. And I think that's a, that's the that's the mission that we're on. That's, but it's a, we're a mission-driven company. We're trying to change kind of how small businesses, you know, use technology and small, medium business use technology. And so for us, that's the mission. I want people who want to buy into that. But to do that, well, I have to protect what makes the company unique and better. Yeah. And if so, if you were sitting a fly on the wall and you overheard um, team members, they're out for drinks, they're kind of bragging on the company or bitching about the company. What would be like your worst nightmare thing for them to say if they were bitching about it? And what would be your like, gosh, I hope that they're saying this? Yeah, oh, it's a great question. I, I, first of all, I think our when we, we we obviously do talk to our employees about these things, we do ask them how they're feeling and hopefully they're telling them the truth. And generally they're very happy, right? I do think there are obviously risk areas. When you're in the growth mode that we're in, we've hired sort of more than half our team in the last two and a half years when no one's in an office or has rarely only lately been in an office. That's what I fear the most. You just brought it up. I fear the most that I can't keep the identity of the company as as um, well-defined and um, well-intentioned as I could pre-COVID. And in that kind of growth mode, when everyone's remote, and guess what? When we do have attrition, it's coming from that recent joiner pool. That's the thing I fear. I, I, I worry that that's what they're saying is, I joined this company. I feel isolated. I don't know what to do about it. They don't, yeah. but again, we don't. 
we get feedback on that. I think we generally do okay. We, every company can do better. Um, but what I want them to say is, I joined this company. I love the mission. I love the people I work with. And, in, and I feel incredibly motivated to contribute. And that, that's what we mostly hear. And, and so that's something I inherited that. I didn't build that. I inherited that. I'm happy to be the keeper of it yeah. as opposed to something that I take personal for. And, and I think that's a, that's a real thing. And it does separate us. It make, does make, make us unique. Uh, it is how our customers and partners feel. And, and long may that continue. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it. I've read, I mean, I'd, first of all, I'll tell you, I don't see resumes coming out of Acumatica. So that makes you feel any better. I usually have a strong finger on the pulse of like sure. what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a good thing. As I mentioned before, we only have several dozen people in Seattle anyway. It's not like we've yeah. got a well, we recruit we recruit nationally and you know, but you you kind of can start to see if there was like a, a some sort of issue, you know, you'd see these things and um but I'm curious because you you're also, I mean, obviously you've got to report to a board, but you're yeah. also you are also a mentor and a board member yourself and an investor. So you've got an interesting purview of like what makes a good board member. Yes. Um, and what what is your take on that as as a board member and also as a CEO? Yeah, I, I love being a board member because it allows me to kind of think about different business problems that I find interesting. And I love helping that CEO. And, and one of the things I find as a board member is that, as I mentioned, CEO is a fairly lonely job. Having other CEOs on your board allows you to talk to someone who's done it and been there and thinking about the same problems you think about. And so I think too often we don't think about board composition that way. We think about, oh, we'll pull someone in and know something about sales or whatever it happens to be. But the role itself needs its own mentorship. So that uh, just that is really important to me. And when I volunteer or when I'm asked to be on a board, the thing I ask that CEO or that founding team, usually it's a set of founders, is do you what do you, what do you want out of this relationship? Do you want mentorship? Do you want someone, that, or do you just want someone that's going to come in and look at your business metrics and give you feedback on those? And I'm much more interested in the boards where they, the CEO wants the mentoring relationship because again, I think that's a, a good self awareness test for me. Um, as oh, a as sure. board member, that's what I do. I, I, I certainly, I, you know, as, like, I'm on other boards or I've been on the boards and I'm on other boards where they're owned by private equity and I can help that CEO understand the motivations of that private equity fund. I'm on other boards where I was an early angel investor. And I'm, in some cases, I was a board member of one for a while for one company where it was just, I'm trying to help that founding team think about as they scale. So it was not about translating to ownership. I think great board members are in it to assist and help, and they're not in it for their ego, and they're not in it, and they don't treat people like they're employees. I think bad board members are the ones that come in and they want to bark at you like they bark at their own team at their own company. Yes. Give yes. me this report. Show me more data. That's the stuff that as a CEO I just don't find helpful at all. So that that's totally. how I like to. Yeah, you've got to be aligned that you're going to be in it with me through the good and the bad, and you're not and gonna, just going to be like, like advisory, or, not like top down reporting in. Totally. Um, I did have someone on the podcast answer. I said, you know what? I asked a similar question and she said, kind of part of her gut meter is like how she feels when she sees the person's phone and she sees the phone and that person's name comes up. Is it like a, oh, I can't wait to get on the phone because I need this person or is it, oh God, I'm going to- my day. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> this is a buzzkill. Like, I don't want to talk to this person. Yeah, yeah, um, right. This one again. Yeah, yeah. What what are you passionate about outside of work? You're obviously really passionate. You've got immersive technologies and unearth. Those are the ones I read about that you're on the board yeah. of. But like, are you I don't know where you get any extra time for anything, but what other things are you enjoying to kind of either relax or get inspired? Sure. Well, I would say this. Um people that can't 
separate their work lives and their personal lives will eventually burn out. And it, that's one of the strongest things I also mentor on is like, how good are you at compartmentalizing your work life and your personal life? You, you have to be able to do that or you can't do this at a high level for a long time. It just isn't possible. Um, so with that said, you know, I do think that's actually one of the, if, you know, one of my strengths, I think, is actually I can do that well. I can separate those things if I need to. And obviously, you know, I, I have a family that I spend a lot of time with, and that's great. But in terms of individual things I'm passionate about, um, I'm, a, I'm a very avid mountain biker. I do that, you know, four or five times a week now in the summer all around the Seattle area. And, and when I go to Oregon and places and Canada, things like that, um, I fish a lot. I'm a fly fisherman. I've been taught by my father since I was very little. Um, I do that a lot. Um, and then I, I get involved in, you know, various charitable organizations that, you know, I really have two types. I, I very involved in um, charities and outreach to things around kids, uh, underprivileged kids, kids with educational issues, um, kids with social issues. I, I'm, I, I, I like working on those issues because it's something I learned from my mother, frankly. Um, and then um, I also get involved in a lot of environment, environmental causes or what I, you know, called mostly local, um, you know, helping, you know, protecting the environment here, thinking about what's going on with mountains, rivers, lakes, whatever. Those are the kind of things I care about. And so that's, that's, where, that's where you're going to find me. I'm either off doing something for recreation or in cases I'm involved with some of those sort of charitable causes. That's, that's incredibly inspiring. I love it. Um, and so what about staying organized, motivated, detailed about uh, structure or rituals for like a good morning, a good week? What are, what are your hacks? I, I think I'm a moderately organized person. I think there are days I, I wish I were more organized. I'm, I'm not, I, I think that you have to be true to your own truth there. You know, like I'm, I, 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 there are days I could be more organized. So put that there. Um, sort of rituals. You know, I, I'm an early riser. I like getting up and having an hour or two to myself in the mornings. Allows me, to, I can get work done if I need to, but it just allows me to clear my head. Um, and, and that's important to me. But beyond that, and I, and I actually like coming to the office. I like getting here. And again, I talk about compartmentalization. I like doing my work here. I like being here for meetings. I like being here to see people. I don't like thinking about that when I drive around the corner to my house. I, I like to separate those things. Um, can't always do that, but that's important to me. It helps my mental health and my stability. Um, but but I, beyond that, I'm not a big ritual person. It's not like I must have this coffee or this time or this thing or this call. No, I, 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 if, I, if, I'm, if my headspace is pretty clear, if I'm taking care of myself, if my batteries are charged, I'll be fine. Yeah. Well, you're clearly crushing it. I'm super impressed. And this is a blast. I have a final question for you. Yeah. And that is what fuels you? Um, it, it, it's some of the things we talked about. I mean, I think what fuels me is, uh, you know, am I doing things I find interesting? Is the, it, it, whether that's work or, or play or, or, you know, something I'm reading, like I'm not, I'm not motivated by end goals. I'm motivated by in the moment, do I find this fun and interesting? And interesting can take lots of dimensions, but that's really what fuels me. And if, if it, it, to do that, I also have to find ways of unplugging. You know, I, I, I have to do things that are meditative. That fuels me also. But if I'm, if I'm in the work or if I'm in the, the project or if I'm in the meeting or I'm in the talk or whatever that is, if I find that interesting, if I'm getting something out of it, I'll keep doing it. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. 
to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.